welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. My name is Jackie Steele, and I am a longtime Canadian political scientist, and I've been living in teaching in Japan for quite some time. And I'm also the founder and CEO of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation here based in Japan. As a global facing uh, business that we are working in English and Japanese and even sometimes in French, we are committed to providing research, policy, and evidence-based DNI training and education for leaders, executives, and corporate professionals on the importance of intersectional diversity, accessibility, holistic corporate policy ecosystems that empower individuals, and of course, innovation that supports the holistic well-being of equality, and that powers our people systems for personal and collective good. We at Enjoy know, and we fundamentally believe that diversity rocks, and it certainly rocks innovation. And this live stream is, uh, was created really with the goal uh, to shine a spotlight on uh, the beautiful diversity of over a hundred Enjoy Diversity and Innovation thought partners, individuals who I have met and been inspired by, who I thought partner with and learn from. And each of these individuals are making individual efforts in Japan predominantly, but also some of them are across Asia Pacific. And they are bringing their individuality in radical ways to bring forward inclusion, to bring forward a diversity positive way of being in the world. And, uh, and they're celebrating also gender equal leadership. And they're doing this all with their own unique flavor and radical individuality. So we wanna honor that and feature that and make that visible in Japan. This we believe to be normal and also aspirational. Diversity rocks innovation. And so through this live stream in particular, we will engage in a particular exercise or practice that I call thought partnering out loud. And I learned about this idea of thought partnering from a leadership coach some three years ago, four years ago now in the United States. And it really struck me as an important uh, practice of building solidarity with another individual. Hey, could you thought partner with me on something? I'm just sort of struggling to get my thoughts together on this, that, or the other. And I would really love your insights. Could, could, we, could we thought partner? And this was the way it was offered as a gift, right? To me, and I sort of thought, wow, I really wanna have that kind of a possibility with the individuals who I find inspiring and who I want to learn from. So this is a, a pillar practice, if you will, of how Enjoy as a business is trying to move the dial on building democratic equality, solidarity building. Um, how, do we, how do we have reciprocal giving of ourselves to others, right? Uh, where we share our expertise. And then how can we use this practice um, to build community, to build a movement and a coalition of interesting diversity positive leaders in Japan and stakeholders who want to fan out and work together to really be the change. Uh, so we can really make sure that in the Reiwa era of Japan, really diversity can rock innovation here and create more well-being. So the live stream format is basically me featuring one of my Enjoy DNI thought partners each week. And um, we come together just as two individuals. We throw out the business cards and the, and the titles and then this and the, that. And we just talk to each other as human beings. And we can hopefully role model a sort of horizontality and egalitarian spirit of coming together, sharing our, our diversities, our complexities, our gray zones, our radical individuality. And this without all of the 
I guess, toxic baggage of some of the hierarchies that can slow us down due to gender or race or sexual orientation or disability or nationality or other things uh, uh, that can sort of be a break on solidarity for sure. And also it can sometimes those toxic uh, dynamics can be a break on innovation and they can slow us down. So we wanna throw it out the window and just say, hey, let's meet up as individuals and thought partner out loud, live to the world. I invite you to come enjoy the gray zones of all of these facets of our, our identities and our diversities. And let's just enjoy 55 minutes together on a jury journey of seeking these nuances out so we can think about how diversity rocks and enriches, blesses our families, our colleagues, our workplaces, and how we can move forward the project of democratic self-government with solidarity and equality and inclusion, not only in our homes, not only in our workplaces or our communities and our countries, but really in all of the spaces that we navigate. I am so excited to feature today's guest, who is the second uh, leader to be featured in our special series in commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the triple disaster that hit Tohoku, Japan on March 11th, some 10 years ago already. Atoyuma, mo 10 years, cannot believe how quickly that has gone. Most of the special series guests are young Japanese women leaders who are living in Tohoku and who have been following their sort of grassroots leadership work through a, a participatory research project I had with uh, an NPL called Women's Eye. And so of the six uh, features, uh, most of them are in Japanese, uh, featuring these young Japanese women in Tohoku. But in the last uh, four years, I had the very you know, amazing opportunity to meet someone in Tokyo who I had not realized was active in the Minami Sanriku Tohoku area doing some really awesome social impact work. And we connected again uh, just recently last year uh, to collaborate around her amazing book launch where she really features some of the, I guess the thought leadership and the ideas that she has gained through her work with an NPO in Tohoku. So today's guest um, is someone who who I hope we can learn from, and we all definitely will learn from, we can be inspired by. So I would love to welcome Angela Ortiz today to the show for this live stream to speak about the Tohoku triple disaster 10 years later, the social impact work that NPO Place to Grow has been doing under the leadership of this amazing woman. So Angela, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. What an honor. I would love if you could, I mean, certainly many people know of your work and know you in the Tokyo area and also across Tohoku, but there's people joining us from around the world who maybe this is their first time learning about the genius that is Angela Ortiz. So I wanted us to take a step back and sort of uh, first start off with if you had to pick, and I'm obviously a fan of saying we have complex diversities in each individual. And so if you had to pick like mm. five of your top diversities or your top identities that make mm. you, you five or six, I don't know how many you might have, but I think that complexity is, is fun to think about. So where would you begin your self-introduction? I would begin with curiosity. I'm an incredibly curious person, uh, a bit fearless and <laughs> tenacious. I, anything that sounds like an adventure, I'm kind of like, yes, okay. And I'm really positive. Like I'm very Mayamuki, like I know that a lot of problems happen and I am from a huge family. So I grew up with like conflict being part of everyday life. So I'm kind of one of those people that's just really like 
positive and creative, curious, tenacious, and adventurous. And resilient, surely, because of all of those siblings that made you have a high tolerance for culture <laughs> and, for, and for different yes. things that can happen in your life. I mean, what yeah. resilience we get from our family context, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Resilience is a great word. I'm adding that in there. <laughs> can you share a little bit about that family, family journey that you experienced? Absolutely. So I'm one of 11 siblings. Wow. We are from the U.S., Colombia, and I'd like to put in Italy because my father grew up in Italy. So he's the third culture kid. And then he married my mother, who's from the U.S. And at five children, they decided to move from California, where I was born, to Japan. At five children? At five children. Wow. Your parents have tremendous resilience. (laughs) It's incredible. So you definitely get the adventurous side from my parents. I've learned this later. Uh, They had five more children in Japan and moved to, we spent some time in the Kanto area just outside of Tokyo. And then eventually they moved to the northernmost city on the Honshu Island, Aomori. And they, to this day, live there. Um, They have an international kindergarten. And when my mom turned 60, she bought a motorbike and they now fill our family chat with pictures of them touring, of nature, of Tohoku, mountains cherry blossoms wow just yeah what what spurred the move because i mean i suppose moving to japan was about adventure was it for a certain professional area that you needed to be in japan for or was it really just pure like let's try something new let's try something new but this was also this was the mid 80s or even early mid 80s where the english teaching boom was you know, happening over here. So my father was obviously, so it was like, we want to go somewhere else. Oh, there's these great business opportunities in Japan if you can teach English. And so they, interesting. you know, what was that? Followed that calling. <laughs> Talk about, you know, if, it's interesting because, I mean, many of us are familiar uh, with the, the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, which the, the you know, Ministry of Education, Monkasho, runs, and they, they bring in all these young people from across Japan, but there's so many other opportunities also outside of that program. And you wonder now, like when the Japanese government, you sort of wonder when they're all sitting around the table, probably these fairly senior men <laughs> thinking about this program. How do we internationalize Japan? How do we bring people, young people who can speak English? I wonder if they thought they would be bringing in this family of 13. <laughs> now you think about it, like ingenious, right? I mean, like we're in a declining population, you know, like aging society. We don't know how to have more children be born in Japan because there's not enough supports in the economy and there's a long working day. And so having children is a challenge for two working households and even for single parents it's even harder and so you have a declining birth rate that's consistently you know plaguing Japan and here with this one teaching opportunity they got 13 <laughs> yeah, plus 13 out of your family right um that's fascinating I hope that I hope that they're listening and taking note like how important bringing in right uh you know foreign talent if you will to Japan can be such an interesting support uh to not only you know rocking innovation bringing new these new voices, but also in terms of like increasing population based through these interesting, interesting dynamics. So from that perspective, then 
they were not challenged sufficiently with the Kanto area of teaching English and thought they'd go really rural and go like to the yeah, northernmost yeah. point of Japan. Like that's what what led to that? So that was a business courageous. Okay. My father worked for a private kindergarten business in the Kanto area, and that's what kept us there for years. And we had our visa through that his business there. But then there was an acquaintance of theirs who owned property in Aomori and really wanted to bring in like, you know, Eikaiwa international education to the Aomori region. So we went up there for six months to help them set it up. And then my father, the visiting period, like to go check out the business and kind of get the orientation was right during the Sakura season, the cherry blossom season. And Aomori has one of the most famous parks, the Hirosaki-jo, the Hirosaki Castle. And I think for my father, because even when we were in Kanto, I remember every summer we'd be in a camper van in Gunma or Chichibu or somewhere really mountain filled in nature. So when he moved up there, he, him and my mom just kind of had a conversation and they were just deciding like, well, I know we came up here just for a few days or a few months, but could we see ourselves here? And right. the long of it was yes. So I think the, the move to Aomori was because of a few reasons um, and a few points probably about their core personalities that just really connected to that area. Well, you know, more and more people and certainly COVID is forcing this kind of an introspection. More individuals are sort of thinking about quality of life and what does it mean to live in a highly densely populated major megapolis city and all of the complexities of that. Is it resilient in a disaster prone country? If we have pandemics, right? What is the beauty also of a return to maybe a slower, less hectic, not doing the hour and a half train commute in the train like this, right? And having greenery and nature and sort of mountains and exposure to that for children to play outdoors and not be, you know, in crowded streets where there's nowhere and there's not really anywhere to play easily outside unless you, you know, like waza waza go all the way to a park nearby to finally get that fresh green space. I think this is, we are at a pivot, you know, pivotal moment, hopefully in history in 2021. Now it's been a year of pandemic officially, right? At least a year if we think from the Japanese timeline of when uh, schools shut down last March, mm. uh, people have now had a year to say, is, is this my happiness? And so the fact that your parents sort of were so forward thinking and going, you know, this is an interesting place to live with the beauty around you. And if you have the security of your work, what gives a better balance overall? And so I think you, you spoke to me about, you know, growing up and how, you know, your mother was such a, a strong leader and you, she, she homeschooled you and, and some of your siblings. And so, but that was Even, up to a certain number of children. And then, and then there was a, there was a dynamic where, you know, there was been there, done that, maybe let's do another, let's have another challenge. Um, how does that, how did that affect you in terms of your experience growing up in, in Aomori? Well, massively, because I had a very limited Japanese uh, language ability, but also understanding of the cultural the cultural aspects. Um, having never had gone to Japanese school, I had a very American upbringing. And although we learned the language, and we had like you know like a bunkasai mitaina kind of events where I learned about Momotaro the Peach Boy and sort of the folklore. 
I didn't really have a lot of Japanese friends. So the sudden move to Aomori was like night and day for me because I was already like older middle school and with no Japanese speaking abilities, the public school said, sorry, she can't integrate here. <laughs> sorry. So I was suddenly, <laughs> yeah, I don't actually understand the whys and wherefores because now I would have gone back to them going, no, that's completely not well, and, and by law, by it's, law, it's, it's, it's a legal right? obligation, right? Of course, she could she could integrate and pick up the language. Um, so I went to like a learning the language three days a week at some local volunteer center, and my siblings went to Japanese school, but they still needed to be homeschooled in English. On top of that, right, right. But the homeschooling component was always a part of my upbringing. And so it was really funny for me last year when a whole bunch of parents on social media are like freaking out about homeschooling. <laughs> like also having raised my own daughter in the Japanese school system and having to homeschool her in English. In English. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely has its challenges. Yeah. Lucky when we moved to Aomori, I found out that they had one of the most extensive English libraries oh. near one of the universities. And so a lot of my time in middle school and high school, because I was quite alone, I didn't, you know, there was no prom, there was no sporting events or something. I really just kind of became a bit of an introvert and I love to read. And in hindsight, I'm very grateful for that time. But at the at the time, moving to Amoni was very painful. Yes. And so is it sort of you and your older siblings that have a common experience of homeschooling and feeling a little bit crash coursed into Japanese cultural context in Aomori, but the younger ones were sort of more integrated into the public school right from the yes, get-go. Does that, does that create interesting, I mean, it's almost like you've got a, a triple international family dynamic because you've got the, you know, your parents sort of common culture together as a couple and their philosophy of how they're living. And then you've got half the kids who are part homeschool and then move to Amori, and then the other ones who are more integrated into the, the Japanese side. What does that look like in terms of like a cross-cultural dynamic in the family? There is, absolutely. But the one thing that is stronger and more powerful than any of those like dynamics is the core family dynamic of who we are, how we love to spend time to eat with with each other, our sense of adventure, our love for food. You know, the, you can see like the Latin culture, the American culture. And then what I love to see is that we did pick up on the Japanese culture. And so we all are quite, well, we're huge fans of, you know, that sort of the politeness and the, the, the wa and understanding this sort of, you don't always have to be Mr. Individual or Miss Individual in order to have a good time or to connect with another person. And I think that dynamic gave us a sense of core, this is who we are, right? This is our foundation as human beings and definitely brought self-esteem and self-strength to us as human beings. But we have loads of disagreements and loads <laughs> of different attitudes and everyone's got a different agenda and a political point of view. And yeah, it's, it's a complete shit show sometimes. <laughs> Well, you know what? In diversity, right? It rocks innovation in great positive ways. And it also rocks us into like a discomfort, like uh, it rocks our worldviews to be confronted by people who we think, what? Like we grew up together. How can you possibly think? How? What? We're from the same family. How can you possibly have that idea? And, and so and yet, right? and yet it exists. And yet that is that is the vibrancy that we get. And, and that's the vibrancy of certainly a 
you know, I mean, I'm always pulling on in democratic theory and, and self-government theories, we're always looking at how do you get a democracy to be vibrant and yutaka, mm. right? Like, and you need that competition of ideas, which means you need all the worldviews and different perspectives to really come in and enrich the discussions and the debates and the dialogues. And man, you can you could just have your own parliament <laughs> within your family. <laughs> right? Like, we have our amazing. own soccer team. Yeah, on soccer team, you had, you could just field and make city council in, a, in your city, <laughs> just all run for election, right? That's that's fascinating. And I mean, from there, when and so I don't really know Aomori so much as I've spent time in Sendai and Miyagi. Um, aside from the research I've been doing, you know, since the last ten years, but so Aomori, uh, what is the connection between the sense of identity? of being from Aomori and how that ties to Tohoku. Is there a sense that that's part of the Tohoku classic, Tohoku regional identity, or is is there sort of a... Yeah, a lot of similarities, like in, in all the Tohoku, like just to keep it simple, like the Tohoku prefectural promotion that you might see at Tokyo Station and the whole four seasons and the food and the onsen. And there's, it's almost like they're all siblings or cousins of the same with the same basic offering. Uh, for myself, I didn't connect too much to the eastern coastline because growing up in the center of Aomori, the only thing I remembered was long drives down to Tokyo and sometimes some great you know, beach spots along the way. But in 2004-05, my older sister moved to Fukushima. Oh. She was born in Fukushima in Shirakawa. So we used to gather there. So like the siblings that lived in Tokyo, we used to gather in Fukushima and go out to the coast. I'd spend a day at the beach or two. Then my younger brother moved to Sendai. Mm. And then, so we, we used to visit him. Actually, I was planning to visit him for the first time since he had gotten married and had his daughter. It was supposed to be that uh, golden week. And then the 311 disaster happened. So I had never actually been to Sendai to experience that um, <clears throat> and the disaster hit. But what I recall very clearly was, as I mentioned, those long drives, right? <laughs> down so when the disaster hit and I was watching on the news the different cities affected I suddenly started to have these like ding oh I remember sitting with the old atlas maps as a navigator for my father you know and I, and those those town names would be on the maps right and so that was oh, it, like it's a flash it's like flashback. yeah oh I know these places what what do I know about these places um but the Aomori connection then also came through people right like um when I was in Aomori, I worked, uh, my first like part-time job was at Hotel Aomori. And one of my colleagues from there was then living in Minami Sandiku at the time of the disaster. And that mm. connection that brought me personally to Minami Sandiku. Yeah. And what was your initial reactions at the time? I mean, I was in Sendai and I realized I didn't even understand the size of what we were dealing with because I had never experienced an earthquake ever to know that if it goes on for a whole minute and you can't walk because you, the building is like a big ferry that's just completely destabilized or rocking appropriately according to the, the architectural build, right? Flexibility, um, thank God. But if you don't know, you don't understand the sort of size and uh, you know magnitude of what 
then was going to transpire. And I actually didn't know and understand the impact of the tsunami until 24 hours later because I heard the alerts, but didn't understand until I saw it on the TV at one of the restaurants, someone who said, come, we have heat, bring the baby, come, just come, bring the baby, come, we've got heat, come, we've got food and heat, come, you know, so saw on the TV for the first time and went, oh, like, could mm -hmm. never have imagined, never, because it's just not a part of my Canadian upbringing to understand mm -hmm. that phenomena. So you were in Aomori at the time, or you were by this time I was elsewhere? in Tokyo. And the first like personal connection was, as I mentioned, my younger brother was living in Sendai. So we were seeing messages between him and his wife on Facebook, where his wife said, you know, where are you? And he says, stay away from the bridges. They're not safe. And of course, we can't call him. So we're hoping that he's evacuating and is, and is safe. But my brother, he's, <laughs> he's a very fierce soul. And so he, of course, after they evacuated, he went back in to kind of assess what was going on and what was the scale of what was going on. Um, we only had the bird's eye view of television, which was horrendous. It's horrendous. Itself. It was horrendous, like, it was horrendous it was to just see absolutely, that. It was more horrendous than the, the, the footage that we saw on when I was 13 or 12 when the Kobe disaster happened, mm -hmm. just because of the, the way the tsunami looks. Exactly. Right. So that was incredibly, I guess it was just impactful in, in the sense that I, I could feel something really horrendous is going on. My brother's up there and my family had then called me from Aomori saying, uh, we're putting together a volunteer group because you know our father had been hired by some journalists and by chance had made his way to Minami Sandiku, talked to wow. the survivors. They had asked for very simple items like hand lotion, diapers, clothing. Yeah. And we were not a registered organization yet. So legally, we were able to just put everything in our vans or our trucks and drive down there and deliver it. Right. A key point, though, is that we wouldn't have been able to do that had my father not been hired by the journalists, because journalists get this pass from the police. Oh. And as you might know, in Japan, it's much easier to go renew something already approved. Yes. To just go and say, hey, we're a bunch of foreigners who want to bring supplies down. Exactly. But all these tiny moments that really enabled the next step uh, yeah. includes funding and the fact that my older sister happened to be visiting from Australia and they started a Facebook page. I wasn't even on Facebook at this time and funding started coming in. And so we rented trucks and we called people to give supplies. And then on the 19th, we drove down to Minami Sandiku. I met up with Yosuke, my colleague from Aomori just so happened that their hotel was not completely damaged and they were desperate for volunteers to come to support in any way that, that we could. And that started the connection and that was ended up being the location that to this day, we're still based out of right. a old, like a combing kind, like old um, cultural center, cultural center that, that is on the property of this hotel. And therein began the seeds of place to grow. Yes. Excellent. I did think that after two, three weeks of volunteering, I would finish and go back to Tokyo and, and give it up for <laughs> what happened was 
two, three weeks went by. And I remember the, I was working as a kindergarten teacher at this time in Tokyo. And I went back because, you know, the boss said, okay, we're resuming school. And I just could not find myself there. I, I found myself, I was still getting calls all day long from people up in Tohoku asking me what to do and where these trucks should be. And I was like, guys, I can't be doing this. I'm in the bathroom, you know, taking these calls. And, and so I, I had a, a talk with my boss and I said, you know, um, this seems to be calling me. Is there any way that, because I was a couple months shy of my contract uh, and they all really supported. And so I resigned and I went back to uh, Minami Sanku to help lead what ended up becoming a food and water distribution system to about 3,000 people. And I mean, I, from a political scientist, you know, perspective, what I find fascinating is how, how we learn, I guess, from, like you say, had the journalist not asked your father to be involved, there wouldn't have been the ability and the permission, right? And so how do we build out these different rules and regulations around a post-disaster response strategy mm-hmm where we don't get trapped by red tape that is unhelpful, right? There's, there's certainly rules and regulations we need for safety and for privacy and for all of these different pieces, right? And, and certainly, you know, there's different ways in which having a whole bunch of people descend on a region doesn't help the region if those individuals can't care for themselves and look after themselves and then are a further drain on the very scarce resources that the locals need. And so there is a whole ethic and, and, and an ethics of care about how do you volunteer and do humanitarian aid in a way that is mindful of not being an imposition, right, on, on the locals who are, like, they have enough to deal with. They don't need a bunch of also individuals who are out of fish out of water and don't know how to cope. But in light of that, how do, like, if you had just even a takeaway around that, what if, like, what would have been the dynamic? Because I know certainly others in, in Sendai, my, my Taiko Sensei, for example, had some kind of a pass. He got some kind of a, a pass for his car. So then his, they could drive up and they would bring, they would get all of the resources from the community and then he would go and he would drive up and carry things up. But he had to get that special pass to have authorization to get on the roads to be let through with the resources to deliver them, right? Um, so in terms of those processes, have you had an opportunity to also hear about what kinds of maybe changes we would want to also integrate to make the post-disaster process more smooth? Yes. Before I go into that, just on the topic of don't be an imposition as a volunteer, that is the reason I wrote the book, Place to Grow, How to Be an Effective Leader. I should have written it, don't be an imposition, because it's a much catchier <laughs> title. Um, but don't be Maywalker. <laughs> you a lot of ideas for like, why you should be thinking, uh, how you should frame your mindset in order to not be an imposition and also frame your heart because it will be traumatic for you. I mean, especially a disaster of this size. Yeah. Um, the people, the situation, the visual devastation was just overwhelming. And for years, it's that way. And even today, it is emotionally trying yes. to hear some of the stories and even hear what people are dealing with. But when it comes to like the overall, let's say, recovery versus preparedness, this is where it's really interesting. The preparedness plan is more important than the recovery response because the preparedness is where you, you already have a plan for how people will work together in the event of X, Y, Z. Now, 
one thing we lacked in 311 was plan B, C, D, all the way to Z in the case right. you know, something else happened or in the case that more than the town was destroyed, you had 600 kilometers destroyed. That means you can't just go to the next town and find resources. Mm. You're completely reliant for months. And then international aid, how do you handle these types of this influx? Um, one thing that um, could help, and I think we've made some progress on this, is then really understanding the, I guess, the flow and experience of the survivors. What does happen? And, you know, as you mentioned, like there are going to be people within the community who have leadership skills and have connection. They have their own social capital that exists already in those towns that they can rely on. So if you understand how the social fabric of rural Japan works, you'll be in a much better place to know who to identify to ask, do you need this kind of support? Yeah. Uh, and I know that in the following disasters throughout Japan, post 311, towns were very quick to set up an NPO call center where NPOs and everybody could just call these people to find out whatever questions you need, which was definitely a learning from the 311 mm -hmm. disasters. It, what I saw in 311 was really very raw human initiative, hit or miss, sometimes right. succeeding and sometimes not, but people having to do what they needed to do in order to try and get either the support they needed or to continue facilitating support. And if you, I mean, the the activities that you pursued, you started off with the, the water and other supply chain side of things because we, we need to start pragmatically with what is, you know, protecting life, right? Um, and then from after that, you morphed into perhaps more, um, I don't know if you would necessarily call it like kokoro no care, but like, uh, caring for individuals at an emotional and holistic sense of helping them refine hope through some of the activism programming and, and rebuilding, I guess, their sense of community with one another and with others. Can you talk about that a yes. little bit? Yes. Uh, initially, we decided to approach Kokoro no Care or that emotional support actually through business because also at that period, there was just so much depression and so much anxiety and stress going on that there was, there was a, I'm just going to use business term, there was a market for tea ceremonies and, you know, cake parties. And, and we did those, you know, whenever we could. And we had loads of partners who came up and all we did was found the space and the people. But we pushed all our energy into helping local farmers regain old farmland that had sort of become just, you know, overrun fields. And I realized that it was that act of physical activity that people needed. They needed to fill their time with something productive. Right. And ideally, if that the end of that effort, there could actually be a financial reward, that was a win-win. So 2012 to 2014 was really full on with the Green Farmers Miyagi project where we helped people revitalize farmland, that also brought in volunteers and created loads of space for us to have these community building events. And then in 2015, we, we split because it wasn't sustainable to do both. It was starting to just become this giant organization and we didn't have the resources. So my, co my colleague and I at the time, he took the business farm and realized he was going to be settling in that area. He got married mm. to a lovely woman from Iwate. And then I really focused observing the last six years and going, okay, well, how do we help these people when 
their homes are starting to rebuild. And the response I got from them was, you know, we stand on our own two feet kind of barely now. Like when we were doing food and water, they were really like, you know, emotionally we're drained help. Now they're like, oh, we're, we're, we're doing okay, but so to stay near us, stay near us. Like don't, don't leave. <laughs> how do we stay? So how do we bring value? So that meant we had to reevaluate everything. And that was the beginning though, of the place to grow philosophy of people inspire people and healthy body, healthy mind and inclusion and support. How do we, you know, not create long-term division and dependency, but yes. actually use our activities to bring people closer together, people right. who may otherwise not get on in the town, for example, or not have the social, the bridging, bridging capital to a neighboring city or even to their own local government. And so the activities, we did workshops and events uh, that just helped people come together. And it's, I mean, this is a challenge within humanitarian aid. It's in a challenge within uh, you know, international cooperation uh, work. How do you provide services that foster the self-determination of the individual community to be self-determining and to be autonomous, to regain that autonomy? So like jiritsu, right? Like we don't wish to have this external force come in and create a dependency that then long-term doesn't actually empower long-term for, for, for individual communities to be regaining their sense of self-government, right? I mean, ultimately yeah. they need to have self-government on their own terms for themselves. And there's a way to support that. Um, but sometimes we do see a lot of aid or that kind of, uh, those kinds of activities, not necessarily leading to the empowering long-term sustainability type of dynamic. So bridging and connecting but making sure that like the autonomy piece is the ultimate out output of, of the efforts, right? And I yes. think one thing you've spoken to me about was you know, how the, the Santa Soul Train activity um, started as a, a, a celebration that gave people sort of hope and an opportunity to come together and a, a place of having joy as an activity with one another but that you were able to pivot that so that then they were leading the, the show on the stage. And I think you talked about the dancing, the dancers of the, the local schools wanting to do their dance, their own dance, and then having a, again, having a role to play, right? Well, let's use what you just spoke about like that, that sort of serious academic <laughs> narrative, like as a structure, right? So what happened was we were there and I just wanted to cheer people up. And I've always loved Christmas. So I talked to some of our, our sponsors and we got together enough turkey and gravy and pie and wine and to just throw them a kind of traditional international, I guess it's kind of North American Christmas party. And right. a band came down. And before we knew it, there's like 125 people there. These guys were on their feet dancing. And, you know, I remember I, I, I asked specifically, can you bring candy canes? Because it's not something we see much in rural Japan. And I was going to give it to all the children. And then I heard this one grandfather go, oh, yeah, I've seen that on television once. <laughs> and I remember going like, okay, scratch that plan. Give it to everybody. Just, just make them laugh and make them feel excited for a, for a night. And I thought that would be it. But the next September, they came to me and were like, so Angela, do you think we could do that event again? And I was like, sure, why not? 
450 people showed up. Of course, people need and parties and dance, they, and, right? They did half of the cooking and the, in, in the, you know, preparing and they organized. So it was an organic way of where we as outsiders could provide that value of like, oh, here's ideas. Here's something that's beyond your comfort zone of understanding and maybe even expertise. But if you guys want it, so the ownership, the autonomy is always mm-hmm. them. What do you guys think? And then how do we take this this idea that maybe is external, but implement it in a way that makes sense and brings value to your community and localizing it to decisions, right? So it was it was hour after hour of conversations of sometimes them shutting me down, sometimes me just throwing out really bad ideas. But eventually, <laughs> that you know that that series of conversation ends up with you have some very interesting very versatile leaders that are locally based and locally yeah. grown, but have a connection to someone or a community like me who can yeah. be that sort of space for them to open their minds creatively and innovatively. And there is that space, right? I mean, I think one of the, in some ways, wonderful things about what we call international exchange or cross-cultural communication or whatever we want, how we want to couch that multicultural conviviality. There's a different bunch of terms around this is people do allow themselves to tap into different parts of their own creativity when they're outside of a Japanese only box, because it's like, Oh, this is kind of like freeing. And there's no, there's no rules about I have to read the air and be careful about the hierarchy and I'm allowed, am I allowed to speak now? Like, is it okay? Yeah. You know, am I okay to have ideas as a young person who wants to have this party have, you know, the junior high school girls want to do their dance? Is that okay? And so you get that sense of freedom, right? When you're in that kind of cosmopolitan cross-cultural and as you can bring different people through and along into that space, you can really open up something that would never have happened otherwise in the city, right? Would never yeah, have happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, every year it was just an evolution of lo- local leaders taking further ownership and designing the entertainment and designing the food and then saying, well, let's do it that way. And, you know, for personal reasons, there were times where I just actually couldn't do as much work than I used to hands on. So it was almost like, because I was transparent with them and said, These are the, this is the max that I can do in like 2015, for example, when I went into corporate, you know, they stepped up. Yeah. People said, okay, well, we want this to keep happening. So we're gonna we're gonna put in more ideas. Mm-hmm. And I thought I felt like that was it was just such a beautiful project to evolve and be a part of. Like just watching that evolution, I learned so much about also not being afraid to say that my means have changed or my skills and expertise, my time and energy have shifted. And if people are aligned and you have that same vision, other people step up. And they and they can, in some ways, it's a gift because it's like, oh, she she needs to lean out, which means now she needs us. Mm-hmm. We need to now give, mm-hmm. we can give back and we can help Angela. Yes. It's, and I, I didn't realize how, because at first I was embarrassed to do that. But then what I realized was that is so key to not fostering dependency. Because they're looking at me going, oh, okay, you're not just this knight in shining armor, gaijin, you know, humanitarian worker. You're actually just a human and you have issues and problems and, and family that you are also living with. But we care about this, what we've been doing together. Yeah. 
So what more can I bring? And suddenly they're, they're shifting. They shifted from victims to survivors and to resilience. The women that I, I know up there, especially are just their humor and their resiliency and strength. And again, go back to the humor. <laughs> They're brilliant people. And I think, I mean, you've written obviously this amazing book uh, with all of the different principles that you've gleaned out of your social impact work in the post-disaster context. Can you briefly maybe share I know you have several that you love but I think there's one in particular mm. you like to highlight what I mean obviously yeah. when everyone to buy so the book, read the book it's excellent. totally reframe renaming this eight principles <laughs> for how to not mess it up <laughs> um, yeah no my favorite is the uh principle eight uh which is people inspire people because that one I think was my most personal struggle with I think I always uh was hoping for you know a bigger NGO or a wiser leader to come in and help lead things. I wondered why we were still succeeding when there were so many times I just honestly didn't have the Japanese skills mm. to have the meetings with, let's say, the Jichikai, the town fathers, and these political figures. So I had to rely on the grassroots approach and these women, because I could sit down and have coffee and tea or drinks with these ladies, and then they would go and execute and you know, talk to the Board of Education and get right out of the cooperation that we did in place. But then it occurred to me over many different situations, I finally realized, I was like, God, it's that I keep showing up. They, someone told me this. It's like, Ange, you just keep showing up and you keep making us feel like we matter. And I was like, wow, so just that little bit of inspiring you has made you so strong. And then they're the ones that actually have, you know, taken Santa Soul Train to what it is to today or made the, the children's workshops that we do. I just continually find another way that I'm supporting their next vision. And it's often a co-created co vision, but they're very clear. Okay, well, Ange, we need you to do this and then we'll manage this side. Well, and there is this that, you know, we, we talk about in the, you know, community building, right? It's really helpful to have, you know, the outsider, the yosomono and the, the crazy person, the bakamono, and also the, the young person, the wakamono, mm. who thinks, you know, like outside the box and is just like starry-eyed. So these three different pieces, you can, you know, in some ways, it's an, it's, it's like a, it's an internal gaiatsu, it's an internal uh, external pressure, right, to come up, have you keep coming up keep coming up, right? Keep And then they then have a mandate of action to go to the Board of Education and say, hey, uh, we're trying to do this. And Angela's coming up from then She has all these partners in Tokyo who want to support. So like, let's have collaboration for these pieces. But you help give them a mandate to make change that maybe otherwise without that external nudging, they might get shut down. Their ideas might not go through. They might well, be told burnout, it's not possible, right? It's hard. The burnout is so real when you're left on your own. And that's one of the big values of continuing to volunteer is you help mitigate or, or just ease the stress that causes right. the burnout for people who are literally rebuilding house and home day in and day out. Exactly. Ten years later, right? Years I mean, later. there's still so much. You know, I mean, I always done. say there's like three very specific ways you can help, right? Move to that location. You can move there and become a resident. You can stay connected and visit, which is why I really, that's why we right. do volunteers. 
Or you can even do, I think in Japan, you can have your taxes part of that community and then they send right. you the product. Right. Uh, but there's just uh, coming out of 311, I see this everywhere and in other organizations, just this like when we've gone through such a traumatic, collectively traumatic ordeal, the most simple thing is what really gives us the biggest strength. And that's please don't forget what we've been through. Right. right. And check in on us. Right. Keep checking check in, in on, on us. Yeah. And let us talk to you about what's happening and, and let us work where we can collaborate or not, but just even the check-in is so therapeutic. You're now pivoting towards an interesting new project that I'd love for you to just share a little bit about. So um, Straticist is the new, the new, the new project. The new initiative, yes, yeah, Straticist Consulting. So I wanna help companies design their impact marketing strategies basically. And this would be specifically around the, the I guess the expertise or the niche of NPO, local government, corporate, social impact projects. How do you make long-term change as companies are moving into the space of CSR and nonprofit? You know, we've seen a lot of shifting, some innovation, some is just a lot of confusion. Um, what I hope to do with Straticus Consulting is help build impactful projects that are collective impact for right. companies. And then I also have an eight-week course for the aspiring social impact leader who wants to pivot into this as a career. Excellent. And I mean, as I, what I see certainly from, from my perspective is, you know, you, you can mobilize all so many different communities and networks that you are navigating in. And so you can be a bridge across like corporate, uh, local government, uh, NPOs, um, professionals in corporate, like oh, there's so many different and all of those different communities often I find sometimes not just in Japan, but also particularly sometimes in rural Japan, but also within the, within within Tokyo even, there can be silos where they're not they're not reaching out. I mean, certainly also academia is another space that certainly, mm. you know, can play a role. And, and there's a really interesting research uh, on social impact and, and, and the role of social capital in post-disaster in post disaster communities, right? And, and certainly I've been working on disaster risk and how we integrate diversity into those post-disaster contexts. So bringing those people and stakeholders, like getting a multi-stakeholder approach we talk about this in the international, you know, agreement, the UN international agreement that was adopted in 2015, that the Sendai framework for action is supposed to be, and for DRR, is supposed to be mm. bringing a multi-stakeholder, whole of society approach for, be it rebuilding post-disaster, but really, be it post-disaster or just peacetimes, we're always in community building. We're always yeah. in a period of democratization as you know seeking self-government that's that's working effectively and if we don't get out of our silos i think we will miss out on those high impact opportunities and so getting people like you who you know like if you've got a, you know it doesn't translate well in english but uh if you've got high big uh fingers in a lot of profile, <laughs> yeah like you've got profile in a lot of different spaces mm -hmm. and connections and communities and networks you can be a bridge, right? You can you can say, oh, yeah. do you know this person? Because you should really be working together with, oh, you want to do that and you want to do that. And you hear it from both sides and then say, okay, I'm going to introduce you so that you guys can collaborate, yeah. right? And I want to take it uh, one step further because the introduction is great. And I've been on the receiving end of that. Right. Times, but but then what? Like, those are the hard conversations to have. How do they you are. all five of us to realize 
an, you know, a single mission and know yeah. what are our individual roles and responsibilities and also, you know, yeah, the, the reward for that. That like little space, I think that's where I'm really hoping to use my experience and also my love for strategies to yes. come in and be like, oh yeah, we can work together like this. Yeah, and you see the big picture of which people's strengths are and where the organizational mm -hmm. strengths are to then say, well, if we, but getting that coordination, getting a agreement, and that's really, I mean, that's deliberative democracy in action right there, mm -hmm. right? Getting five people to come to the table and hammer out, what are our rules of engagement? How do we want to work together? What's the big goal we share and vision? And then how do we each contribute to move it forward in a way that's all win-win? And having that key person who can do that brokering and, and guiding and helping the co-creation process forward is so important, I think, indefinitely uh, for all democracies worldwide. I mean, that is a role of change agency we really need. So I'm always uh, very excited to see your next projects and we'll look forward to the next things. And, and I'm so glad that you're in the Enjoy Thought Partner Network because certainly that's what we're trying to do and just getting people to know each other, like to see each other and to find each other and then to say, okay, where are those opportunities to bring diversity positive leadership with social impact uh, for good by design and by intentionality. Um, so I've certainly learned a lot from you and I'm very thankful for this for this thought partnering today and also uh, moving forward. Your one like minute or under a minute uh, vision for where you want to see things shift in the world. Well, I think, you know, in this space of charity, philanthropy, cause marketing, there's like so many different words, which I think is sort of all the same thing. It's just that people often think that for social enterprise, it's got to be this big vision and you need to have thousands of stakeholders. But mm. yesterday, a woman was telling me she wants to be one degree of change for each of us. If she says, if there is more unfuckable woman out there, if it's just one degree more because of you, she's then, she's like, I'm happy. And I was thinking about, wow, in the field, like in my field here of social and environmental sustainability, yeah, if it's just one of you that instead of like putting a hat on, think of it as how am I integrating these principles into my lifestyle? Now that could be phasing out plastic, that could be you know volunteering at your local women's shelter or with animals, it could be anything that speaks to your heart. But don't look at it as like, oh, I'm gonna do this while I'm in college or university. I'm going to make a way for this to be part of my core identity. This is part of who I am and how I make a change in the world. And I think that one degree is how we make the most real long-term change. I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, for me, that's, like in a nutshell, civic engagement to drive democratization, right? And self-government. It's, it's, it's that it's not just a thing we do for fun when we're students, right? This is a caregiving of our communities that is for life. Or after we're we get really wealthy and we feel like we need to give back. So <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> Yeah, we need to be, right, I mean, self-government, what does that mean? Well, I mean, we kind of need to do that in our own individual lives, but also for our, our communities, right? Like, Yeah, together. and I think it's, it's just thinking about it in, as in, like, you would your own world and your own life. What it's, I mean, now, some of us want a huge scope in life, right, and want to make, like, a million people impact, uh, but <laughs> not probably the most realistic. Most of us mm. can, small impacts, like 50 people, 100 people, could be yeah. your family, but they get... You either get them educated or on a project around something you really care about. 
And I think that's sustainable social impact in action. And create such a ripple, a ripple that we can't imagine, right? The impact long-term actually over time. A beautiful, mm. is it a beautiful life is that famous movie that really it talks about uh, the impact of one individual on so many lives that we mm. fail to, to situate how much impact we actually are having. Well, thank you for that final inspirational message and takeaway for all of us to really, however big or small, just get in there, right? Get in there and bring your individual gifts and talents as an individual forward into the this world because we all need it. We definitely all need it to take care of each other. That's a beautiful way for us to have our, our second uh, series and interview Thought Partnering Out Loud. Hopefully that inspires everyone watching to think through how they can be the change. And next week we will be shifting into uh, another third interview, which will be in Japanese. It will be featuring the work of a woman who is so inspiring as well, Miyoko Sato, who is a midwife and also the owner and founder of the clinic uh, called Mammaru Mama Iwate and has been doing pre and post maternal care to women in, uh, in Iwate and all throughout the disaster period, despite herself having a baby strapped on her back while she was out doing all of the care, pre and post maternal uh, care to pregnant women in the disaster affected areas across Iwate. So I hope that those who are interested in these uh, topics and in that inspirational story will also join next week. Just a, a shout out to the Enjoy team. Of course, there are so many different people who come together and support. Uh, me and, and others on our team in building out the live stream and building out different pieces of what Enjoy is trying to bring forward in terms of educational workshops on diversity, equity, and innovation. Also online uh, training courses that we will be pursuing and, and offering in terms of train the trainers for people who wish to be in the space as professional leaders and would like to have core foundations training that bring the best of academics, theory, research, practitioner, lived realities. We're gonna bring it all forward to make sure people get a really holistic education through Enjoy offerings. So check us out on our website if you've got the interest and time. Thank you everyone for listening today. Thank you, Angela, for such an inspiring talk. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. <laughs>
money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.